But today we're in the book of Acts chapter 5. So um, you can possibly turn there, but let's ask the Lord to reveal to us what he has for us this morning. Gracious Lord, as we look into Acts chapter 5 and the story we find there, pray that there will be uh, new insights for us, new understandings, and uh, it'll all be to your glory. Amen. So we're starting from verse 17 onwards. And the book of Acts, it's just a wonderful record of the early days of the Christian church. And as we get to this chapter today, chapter 5, we're going to encounter the first violent resistance from the Jewish power brokers. And so let's remind us of what these power brokers were facing. We go back to verse 12 to 16. The apostles, right on. The apostles performed many signs and wonders amongst the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on mat beds and mats so that at least... Peter's uh, shadow might uh, fall on them as they passed by and crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. So that's what they're facing and as leaders it's very easy to, uh, to diss them really but what if it was us? What if you were a leader? Have you ever put yourself in the place of a leader and this sort of thing suddenly happening and springing up and your job is to keep the peace? Would you be a better leader than they were? The other day Ruth was cleaning some things out, found some notes from a course she'd done and there was a checklist there on bad leadership. And bad leaders are insecure and they sabotage other people's efforts and they bring attention to the faults of those other people and they feel jealous of other people's being successful and they play it safe just to keep their position and, and they, they like other people to notice them and they don't really allow others to rise up and lead. And so I wonder as you think about those characteristics of a bad leader, what of those ones do you see in the Jewish leaders on that day? Because no matter what you think about what was going on through the apostles, the fact is they were getting an awful lot of public attention. They were the flavour of the month. They were going viral, I suppose we would say, wouldn't we? And the high priest mob, who should have been very spiritual because they were the priestly people, and they should have been able to, being spiritually alive people, they should have been able to recognise something phenomenally good spiritually. But they were actually very secular. They were composed mainly of the most secular branch of Judaism called the Sadducees, a group who didn't even believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. They had achieved their position of power through rational means, through political savvy, through the, you know, the secret handshake. And they were playing an interesting game of, of balancing 
the considerable power they still had over their own people against the fact that they had Roman invaders above them. And so they're doing that and along comes this spiritual phenomenon and it threatens that very delicate balance of power they worked so hard to achieve. And so here's what they did. And you judge for yourself whether it's good leadership or bad leadership. Then the high press and all his associates who are members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. I was surprised by that. I hadn't expected a just a very simple, primal reaction, jealousy. It just seemed so infantile for leaders. Because all attention was going towards Peter and John's mob and they were just jealous. Apparently, when you want to be powerful, anything which draws attention away from you makes you jealous. And you only feel good about yourself when others are listening to you and they're taking your advice. And if you don't have a job title or a given authority, you just don't feel good about yourself because you can't abide feeling weak or out of the loop because you want to have your say. And it's important that they hear what you think. So I think that's an important check for our personal leadership in the areas in which we're involved. Do we need to ask ourselves, just check now and then, do we get jealous when other people are being successful? Do we have to be in charge in order to feel good about ourselves? For a good leader, a humble leader, a secure leader, encourages other people's efforts, points out their strong points and overlooks their flaws. A good leader readily admits when they're wrong and they give credit to other people. And they rejoice when other people do good things. And they're willing to take a risk to improve themselves because they might fail and that's okay. And in fact, a good leader is content to be anonymous at times. But that's not what we see here amongst the Jewish leaders, is it? And as we'll see a bit later in this story, the high priestly mob were actually, because they were the upper class, you know, they, they were astounded. They were outraged at the almost incomprehensible thought that the apostles would dare to disobey them, to, to not do what they told them to do. They just couldn't handle their power being challenged. And so, out of this primal jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail, which was not the nice jail. But... They didn't realise they are fighting against the Lord. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go and stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. And at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they'd been told, and they began to teach the people. And we go, yes, the Lord has more game than the earthly power. And just at this point, I'm just so reminded, you know, David, up before Goliath, what did he say about him? He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who are these Jewish leaders that they should defy the armies of the living God? And, and you've got this situation where the living God is alive and he sends an angel, 
open the doors of the jail, escort the imprisoned apostles out in such a way that the jailers were just completely unaware they were gone. I don't know about you, but I call that a miracle. And then how in your face is the angel's instructions to oh, just go back, right back to what you were doing? Have you ever heard of a prisoner escaping jail and then going right back to work? No. They're usually fully engaged in trying to be invisible, trying to get off the grid. And of course, the fact that they went back to the preaching proves their good intentions. They were not criminals running away. They were men of good character, conscientiously and courageously living out of their beliefs. And they were obedient to their God. The angel says, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. This new life. Many think that Jesus' message is about not doing sinful stuff or being good enough to earn a place in heaven or following the rules or believing the right stuff. That verse says something different. It says it's about life, this new life. It's about being truly alive, about being given a life which you didn't have before. It's moving out of fears and out of bondages and darknesses and feeling nearly dead into feeling fully alive and free because the message they had to share was full of life. And it was about a new way of living. It was actually a birth into eternal life because we're born again when you believe in Jesus. Something totally new for humanity. A life which had such a quality, quality in it, so real, that even punishment and persecution could not dampen the enthusiasm the apostles had for this, a life, an everlasting life. The Apostle John writes about this new life in his Gospel. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. And that's what the apostles had here. They had found this new life. It was abundant. It was full. And anyone who believes in Jesus can have it too. And so that's what they were talking about. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. And then comes a big surprise for the authorities. I love this. When the high priest and the associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, um, well, uh, we found the jail securely locked and the guards were standing at the door and when we opened, there was no one inside. Ooh, and on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what it might lead to. 
How do you find this reaction? It's like you've come down to the paddock, it's empty, the horse is bolted, and well, now I'm really worried. And wouldn't you like to see their faces when the next bit of news comes in? And someone, and someone said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Ah, it's always good to see bullies out of their depths, isn't it? And at that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. And they, they didn't use force because they feared the people would stone them. <laughs> they were rougher times. I mean, people were publicly executed. They were hung on crosses. You could get floggings up to 39 lashes as a maximum. And the general population was quite capable of picking up stones and stoning you on the spot. But a list that shows the power of public opinion. You know, these days, as Christians are realising they need to get more involved in politics, you should know that the thing politicians are most afraid of is losing their votes. And the most powerful thing you can do is tell them whether they have your vote or not and whether you're going to tell your mates so you can influence their vote. And when political leaders are on shaky ground, they realise they can't use force or it become obvious to the people that they're on shaky ground. And so what do they do? The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. We gave you strict orders. So they couldn't believe that they'd be disobeyed. And then we get the twisted language of the abuser, what we would call a mixed message. You are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. It's not our fault. Oh, my. The lengths us humans will go to to say, it's not my fault, it wasn't me. But what had happened just a month or so earlier? The crowd stirred up by the Jewish leaders is chanting before the Roman governor Pilate, crucify him. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but then instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered. His blood is on us and on our children. What a chilling thing to say. His blood is on us and on our children. How unbelievably immense to make yourself accountable or guilty for having put the Saviour of the world to death on a cross. And even more, how astounding that Christ's death on the cross to pay for all the sin of all time makes it possible even for these people who said that to be forgiven. Friends, follow that example. Forgive everyone. So these leaders, they try to twist the truth of history. They try to make themselves blameless because 
power is more important to them than truth. Power is more important to them than truth. And beware of people like this who are not scrupulously honest with the truth. Because like these leaders, they'll play with the narrative to try and present their opinion as the truth. And that will be an opinion designed to make you go the way they want you to go. But Peter, he's full of the Holy Spirit and he's caught up with the reality of this new life and he has no need to change what he's saying. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And at any point where an earthly authority clearly countermands biblical truth, the authentic Christian has no real decision to make he will decide to obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And God exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Saviour that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. That's the facts. And we are witnesses. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Because they've seen it with their own eyes. And, and you see it with your own eyes, that's going to convince you. And the reaction? When they heard this, they were furious. And they wanted to put them to death. And that's a fairly common reaction to unpleasant news, isn't it? Cover your ears, scream loudly, and either run to stop them or run away. But God is never outgunned. He has hitherto brought in supernatural resources when he put in the angel who got the apostles out of jail and now he's going to use secular resources. He's going to use one of their own, Gamaliel, to use earthly logic to save the day. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered put the men outside for a while. And he addressed the Sanhedrin. He said, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers dispersed, all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean. He appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt and he too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. And you'll only find yourself fighting against God. And they accepted it. But that logic wouldn't work so well today, would it? Because Gamaliel says that if the movement's not of God, it will fail. But how many false religions are there in great strength of numbers today? People believe and commit the wrong beliefs all the time. There was an interesting little aside I noticed. Uh, in chapter 26 of Acts, Paul says this, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they are put to death, 
I cast my vote against them. So it's quite possible that the foremost missionary in the world, Saul of Tarsus, was there in these meetings. He was a student of Gamaliel and he cast his vote against the Christians. Interesting. But back to the Jewish leaders. Although they didn't have truth on their side and although they had no legitimate reason to hold the disciples, they still had to flex their muscle, didn't they? So they had them flogged. Bullies always want to get in the last punch, last insult in a futile attempt to save face. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in. They had them flogged. And they ordered them, again, don't speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Well, I would find it discouraging, but the apostles were not discouraged at all. After they left the Sanhedrin, they, they left it, Rejoicing, because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, you know what rejoicing is. It's being joyous, it's being happy, it's being elated, it's being ecstatic. And who would have thought that you could be joyous after being flogged? Well... It can be if it has deep meaning, the flogging. It can be you can re rejoice if you've seen your Lord flogged first, flogged so much that he couldn't carry the crossbar of his cross to his own crucifixion. It has deep meaning if you've seen him come back to life after that dreadful experience and if after that you've spoken with him and you've eaten with him and you've talked with him over a period of a month on many occasions and it does if you've then seen him taken up to heaven and you've had the Holy Spirit filling you at Pentecost and you've absolutely understood the baton has now been placed onto you, passed on to you and it has deep meaning if you know that the fruit of that suffering is salvation for all who will believe. It does if you understand that it, you are deeply connected with the work of God, the work of Jesus. And it, it does have meaning if you are full of the Holy Spirit and you can see the reality there is a heaven, there is a hell, and you can feel the reality of this new life. The apostles are filled with joy because they had encountered this new life. And they wanted to tell everyone. The other morning I had a long talk with a young fellow who had also discovered this new life. He was a prodigal son who got badly caught by the devil for a few years. And his bondage, as he talked to me, was excruciatingly depressing and demoralizing. And he turned back to the Lord the previous week and the Lord had performed an amazing work of renewal and restoration with him. And as he humbly and gratefully shared his story, <laughs> it was wonderful. He was practically glowing. He was struggling to find words to describe the wonder of what Jesus had done in his heart and soul because he was so grateful and so refreshed and so renewed. And it was like he was alive again and he was alive in Christ he'd finally laid down his self-sufficiency and his pride and his trust in his own abilities and put all his faith in Jesus alone. And he was a powerful example of this new life. 
He wasn't in Acts chapter 5. He's in Acts chapter 20, 22. And I wonder if you are enjoying your life in Jesus to the same extent as these guys. Is it true for you that his compassions never fail and they're new every morning? Acts, the book of Acts shows us that if we really catch hold of this new life as they did, that God will do amazing things through us which will build the kingdom of God in Makkah. Are we up for it? All it takes is willing hearts and people willing to allow Jesus to be in charge, willing to listen to what the Holy Spirit tells them. So will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we pause to see that the, the wonder of people who really are embedded in this new life, who are chasing it, who are chasing you, who are drawing from you, from your compassions every morning, your mercies every morning, who are just full of Jesus. Lord, we become spiritually alive when we say yes to you, when we're determined to turn away from living without you, and when we put our faith in you alone. So please forgive us our sin. Enable us to forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.